Section 7 of The World's Famous Orations, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The World's Famous Orations, Volume 4. Charles James Fox, Part 4. On the Refusal to Negotiate with France. This speech was delivered in the House of Commons on February 3, 1800. A reply to William Pitt's speech on the same day, printed on the previous page. For more than five years, Fox had now been seldom seen in his seat, but, indignant at the reply already made to the First Council's overtures of peace, and in deference to the wishes of his friends, he came forward to make this speech. At so late an hour of the night, I am sure you will do me the justice to believe that I do not mean to go at length into the discussion of this great question. Exhausted as the attention of the house must be, and unaccustomed as I have been of late to attend in my place, nothing but a deep sense of my duty could have induced me to trouble you at all, and particularly to request your indulgence at such an hour." sir my honourable and learned friend mr erskine has truly said that the present is a new era in the war and the right honourable gentleman opposite to me mr pitt feels the justice of the remark for by travelling back to the commencement of the war and referring again to all the topics and arguments which he has so often and so successfully urged upon the house and by which he has drawn them on to the support of his measures he is forced to acknowledge that at the end of a seven years conflict we are come but to a new era in the war at which he thinks it necessary only to press all his former arguments to induce us to persevere all the topics which have so often misled us all the reasonings which has so invariably failed all the lofty predictions which have so constantly been falsified by events all the hopes which have amused the sanguine and all the assurances of the distress and weakness of the enemy which have satisfied the unthinking are again enumerated and advanced as arguments for our continuing the war what at the end of seven years of the burdensome and most calamitous struggle in which this country ever was engaged are we again to be amused with notions of finance and calculations of the exhausted resources of the enemy as a ground of confidence and of hope gracious god were we not told five years ago that france was not only on the brink and in the jaws of ruin but that she was actually sunk into the gulf of bankruptcy were we not told as an unanswerable argument against treating that she could not hold out another campaign, that nothing but peace could save her, that she wanted only time to recruit her exhausted finances, that to grant her repose was to grant her the means of again molesting this country, and that we had nothing to do but persevere for a short time in order to save ourselves forever from the consequences of her ambition and her Jacobinism? What? 
after having gone on from year to year upon assurances like these and after having seen the repeated refutations of every prediction are we again to be gravely and seriously assured that we have the same prospect of success on the same identical grounds and without any other argument or security are we invited at this new era of the war to conduct it upon principles which if adopted and acted upon may make it eternal if the right honorable gentlemen shall succeed in prevailing on parliament and the country to adopt the principles which he has advanced this night i see no possible termination to the contest no man can see an end to it and upon the assurances and predictions which have so uniformly failed we are called upon not merely to refuse all negotiations but to countenance principles and views as distant from wisdom and justice as they are in their nature wild and impracticable i must lament that the right honorable gentleman mr pitt has thought proper to go at such length and with such severity of minute investigation into all the early circumstances of the war which whatever they were are nothing to the present purpose and ought not to influence the present feelings of the house i certainly shall not follow him through the whole of this tedious detail though i do not agree with him in many of his assertions i do not know what impression his narrative may make on other gentlemen but i will tell him fairly and candidly he has not convinced me i continue to think and until i see better grounds for changing my opinion than any that the right honorable gentleman has this night produced i shall continue to think and to say plainly and explicitly that this country was the aggressor in the war but with regard to austria and prussia is there a man who for one moment can dispute that they were the aggressors it will be vain for the right honorable gentleman to enter into long and plausible reasoning against the evidence of documents so clear so decisive so frequently so thoroughly investigated the unfortunate monarch louis the sixteenth himself as well as those who were in his confidence has borne decisive testimony to the fact that between him and the emperor leopold of austria there were an intimate correspondence and a perfect understanding do i mean by this that a positive treaty was entered into for the dismemberment of france certainly not but no man can read the declarations which were made at mantua as well as at pilnitz as they are given by mr bertrand de molville without acknowledging that this was not merely an intention but a declaration of an intention on the part of the great powers of germany to interfere in the internal affairs of france for the purpose of regulating the government against the opinion of the people this though not a plan for the partition of france was in the eye of reason and common sense an aggression against france let us suppose the case to be that of great britain will any gentleman say that if two of the great powers should make a public declaration that they were determined to make an attack on this kingdom as soon as circumstances should favor their intention that they only waited for this occasion and that in the meantime they would keep their forces ready for the purpose it would not be considered by the parliament and the people of this country as a hostile aggression and is there any englishman in existence 
who was such a friend to peace as to say that the nation could retain its honor and dignity if it should sit down under such a menace i know too well what is due to the national character of england to believe that there would be two opinions on this case if thus put home to our own feelings and understandings we must then respect in others the indignation which such an act would excite in ourselves and when we see it established on the most indisputable testimony that both at pilnitz and at mantua declarations were made to this effect it is idle to say that as far as the emperor and the king of prussia were concerned they were not the aggressors in the war i really sir cannot think it necessary to follow the right honourable gentleman into all the minute details which he has thought proper to give us respecting the first aggression but that austria and prussia were the aggressors not a man in any country who has ever given himself the trouble to think at all on this subject can doubt nothing could be more hostile than their whole proceedings did they not declare to france that it was her internal concerns not her external proceedings which provoked them to confederate against her look back to the proclamations with which they set out read the declarations which they made themselves to justify their appeal to arms they did not pretend to fear her ambition her conquests her troubling her neighbors but they accused her of new modeling her own government they said nothing of her aggressions abroad they spoke only of her clubs and societies at paris sir in all this i am not justifying the french i am not trying to absolve them from blame either in their internal or external policy i think on the contrary that their successive rulers have been as bad and as execrable in various instances as any of the most despotic and unprincipled governments that the world ever saw i think it impossible sir that it should have been otherwise it was not to be expected that the french when once engaged in foreign wars should not endeavor to spread destruction around them and to form plans of aggrandizement and plunder on every side men bred in the school of the house of bourbon could not be expected to act otherwise they could not have lived so long under their ancient masters without imbibing the restless ambition the perfidy and the insatiable spirit of the race they have imitated the practice of their great prototype and through their whole career of mischiefs and of crimes have done no more than servilely trace the steps of their own louis the fourteenth if they have overrun countries and ravaged them they have done it upon bourbon principles if they have ruined and dethroned sovereigns it is entirely after the bourbon manner if they have even fraternized with the people of foreign countries and pretended to make their cause their own they have only faithfully followed the bourbon example they have constantly had louis the grand monarch in their eye but it may be said that this example was long ago and that we ought not to refer to a period so distant true it is a remote period applied to the man but not so of the principle the principle was never extinct nor has its operation been suspended in france except perhaps for a short interval during the administration of cardinal fleury 
prime minister from 1726 to 1743. And my complaint against the Republic of France is not that she has generated new crimes, not that she has promulgated new mischief, but that she has adopted and acted upon the principles which have been so fatal to Europe under the practice of the House of Bourbon. It is said that wherever the French have gone, they have introduced revolution, they have sought for the means of disturbing neighboring states, and have not been content with mere conquest. What is this but adopting the ingenious scheme of Louis the Fourteenth? He was not content with merely overrunning a state. Whenever he came into a new territory, he established what he called his Chamber of Claims, a most convenient device by which he inquired whether the conquered country or province had any dormant or disputed claims, any cause of complaint, any unsettled demand upon any other state or province upon which he might wage war upon such state, thereby discover again ground for new devastation and gratify his ambition by new acquisitions. What have the Republicans done more atrocious, more Jacobinical than this? Louis went to war with Holland. His pretext was that Holland had not treated him with sufficient respect. A very just and proper cause for war, indeed. Surely, sir, if we must be thus rigid in scrutinizing the conduct of an enemy, we ought to be equally careful in not committing ourselves, our honor, and our safety with an ally who has manifested the same want of respect for the rights of other nations. Surely, if it is material to know the character of a power with whom you are about only to treat for peace— it is more material to know the character of allies with whom you are about to enter into the closest connection of friendship and for whose exertions you are about to pay. Now, sir, what was the conduct of your own allies to Poland? Is there a single atrocity of the French in Italy, in Switzerland, in Egypt, if you please, more unprincipled and inhuman than that of Russia, Austria, and Prussia in Poland? Footnote, the three partitions of Poland occurred in 1772, 1783, and 1795. End footnote. What has there been in the conduct of the French to foreign powers? What in the violation of solemn treaties? What in the plunder, devastation, and dismemberment of unoffending countries? What in the horrors and murders perpetrated upon the subdued victims of their rage in any district which they have overrun, worse than the conduct of those three great powers in the miserable, devoted, and trampled-on kingdom of Poland, and who have been or are our allies in this war for religion and social order and the rights of nations? Oh, but you regretted the partition of Poland. Yes, regretted. You regretted the violence. And that is all you did. You united yourselves with the actors. You, in fact, by your acquiescence, confirmed the atrocity. 
but they are your allies and though they overran and divided poland there was nothing perhaps in the manner of doing it which stamped it with peculiar infamy and disgrace the hero of poland the russian field marshal suvorov perhaps was merciful and mild he was as much superior to bonaparte in bravery and in the discipline which he maintained as he was superior in virtue and humanity he was animated by the purest principles of christianity and was restrained in his career by the benevolent precepts which it inculcates was he let unfortunate warsaw and the miserable inhabitants of the suburb of prague stormed on november fourth seventeen ninety four followed by horrible atrocities when kosciusko commanded the poles in particular tell what do we understand to have been the conduct of this magnanimous hero with whom it seems bonaparte is not to be compared he entered the suburb of prague the most populous suburb of warsaw and there he let his soldiery loose on the miserable unarmed and unresisting people men women and children nay infants at the breast were doomed to one indiscriminate massacre thousands of them were inhumanely wantonly butchered and for what because they have dared to join in a wish to ameliorate their own condition as a people and to improve their constitution which had been confessed by their own sovereign to be in want of amendment and such is the hero upon whom the cause of religion and social order is to repose and such is the man whom we praise for his discipline and his virtue and whom we hold out as our boast and our dependence while the conduct of bonaparte unfits him to be even treated with as an enemy but france it seems has roused all the nations of europe against her and the long catalogue has been read to you to prove that she must have been atrocious to provoke them all is it true sir that she has roused them all it does not say much for the address of his majesty's ministers if this be the case what sir have all your negotiations all your declamations all your money been squandered in vain have you not succeeded in stirring the indignation and engaging the assistance of a single power but you do yourselves injustice between the crimes of france and your money the rage has been excited and full as much is due to your seductions as to her atrocities my honourable and learned friend mr erskine was correct therefore in his argument for you cannot take both sides of the case you cannot accuse france of having provoked all europe and at the same time claim the merit of having roused all europe to join you no man regrets sir more than i do the enormities that france has committed but how do they bear upon the question as it at present stands are we forever to deprive ourselves of the benefits of peace because france has perpetrated acts of injustice sir we cannot acquit ourselves upon such ground we have negotiated with the knowledge of these acts of injustice and disorder we have treated with them twice yet the right honourable gentleman cannot enter into negotiation with them again and it is worth while to attend to the reasons that he gives for refusing their offer 
the revolution itself is no more an objection now than it was in the year seventeen ninety six when he did negotiate for the government of france at that time was surely as unstable as it is at the present the right honorable gentleman however thinks otherwise and he points out four distinct possible cases besides the re-establishment of the bourbon family in which he would agree to treat with the french one if bonaparte shall conduct himself so as to convince him that he has abandoned the principles which were objectionable in his predecessors and that he will be actuated by a more moderate system i ask you sir if this is likely to be ascertained in war it is the nature of war not to allay but to inflame the passions and it is not by the invective and abuse which have been thrown upon him and his government nor by the continued irritations which war is sure to give that the virtues of moderation and forbearance are to be nourished two if contrary to the expectations of ministers the people of france shall show a disposition to acquiesce in the government of bonaparte does the right honorable gentleman mean to say that because it is a usurpation on the part of the present chief that therefore the people are not likely to acquiesce to it i have not time sir to discuss the question of this usurpation or whether it is likely to be permanent but i certainly have not so good an opinion of the french nor of any people as to believe that it will be short-lived merely because it was a usurpation and because it is a system of military despotism cromwell was a usurper and in many points there may be found a resemblance between him and the present chief consul of france there is no doubt but that on several occasions of his life cromwell's sincerity may be questioned particularly in his self-denying ordinance in his affected piety and other things but would it not have been insanity in france and spain to refuse to treat with him because he was a usurper or wanted candor no sir these are not the maxims by which governments are actuated they do not inquire so much into the means by which power may have been acquired as into the fact of where the power resides the people did not acquiesce in the government of cromwell but it may be said that the splendor of his talents the vigor of his administration the high tone with which he spoke to foreign nations the success of his arms and the character which he gave to the english name induced the nation to acquiesce in his usurpation and that we must not try bonaparte by his example will it be said that bonaparte is not a man of great abilities will it be said that he has not by his victories thrown a splendor over even the violence of the revolution and that he does not conciliate the french people by the high and lofty tone in which he speaks to foreign nations are not the french then as likely as the english in the case of cromwell to acquiesce in his government if they should do so the right honorable gentleman may find that this possible predicament may fail him he may find that though one power may make war it requires two to make peace three if the allies of this country shall be less successful than they have every reason to expect they will be in stirring up the people of france against bonaparte and in the further prosecution of the war and four if the pressure of the war should be heavier upon us than it would be convenient for us to continue to bear 
these are the other two possible emergencies in which the right honorable gentleman would treat even with bonaparte sir i have often blamed the right honorable gentleman for being disingenuous and insincere on the present occasion i certainly cannot charge him with any such thing he has made to-night a most honest confession he is open and candid he tells bonaparte fairly what he has to expect i mean says he to do everything in my power to raise up the people of france against you i have engaged a number of allies and our combined efforts shall be used to excite insurrection and civil war in france i will strive to murder you or to get you sent away if i succeed well but if i fail then i will treat with you my resources being exhausted even my solid system of finance having failed to supply me with the means of keeping together my allies and of feeding the discontents i have excited in france then you may expect to see me renounce my high tone my attachment to the house of bourbon my abhorrence of your crimes my alarm at your principles for then i shall be ready to own that on the balance and comparison of circumstances there will be less danger in concluding a peace than in continuance of war is this political language for one state to hold to another and what sort of peace does the right honorable gentleman expect to receive in that case does he think that bonaparte would grant to baffled insolence to humiliated pride to disappointment and to imbecility the same terms which he would be ready to give now sir we have heard to-night a great many most acrimonious invectives against bonaparte against all the course of his conduct and against the unprincipled manner in which he seized upon the reins of government i will not make his defence i think all this sort of invective which is used only to inflame the passions of this house and of the country exceedingly ill-timed and very impolitic but i say i will not make his defence i am not sufficiently in possession of materials upon which to form an opinion on the character and conduct of this extraordinary man on his arrival in france he found the government in a very unsettled state and the whole affairs of the republic deranged crippled and involved he thought it necessary to reform the government and he did reform it just in the way in which a military man may be expected to carry on a reform he seized on the whole authority for himself it would not be expected from me that i should either approve or apologize for such an act i am certainly not for reforming governments by such expedients but how this house can be so violently indignant at the idea of military despotism is i own a little singular when i see the composure with which they can observe it nearer home nay when i see them regarded as a frame of government most peculiarly suited to the exercise of free opinion on a subject the most important of any that can engage the attention of the people was it not the system which was so happily and so advantageously established of late all over ireland and which even now the government may at its pleasure proclaim over the whole of that kingdom are not the persons and property of the people left in many districts at this moment to the entire will of military commanders footnote 
the situation here described was that which existed before the union but after the rebellion had practically been suppressed the union of the two kingdoms was effected on january first eighteen o one and footnote it is not the interest of bonaparte it seems sincerely to enter into a negotiation or if he should even make peace sincerely to keep it but how are we to decide upon his sincerity by refusing to treat with him surely if we mean to discover his sincerity we ought to hear the propositions which he desires to make but peace would be unfriendly to his system of military despotism sir i hear a great deal about the short-lived nature of military despotism i wish the history of the world would bear gentlemen out in this description of it was not the government erected by augustus caesar a military despotism and yet it endured for six or seven hundred years military despotism unfortunately is too likely in its nature to be permanent and it is not true that it depends on the life of the first usurper though half of the roman emperors were murdered yet the military despotism went on and so it would be i fear in france if bonaparte should disappear from the scene to make room perhaps for berthier or any other general what difference would that make in the quality of french despotism or in our relation to the country we may as safely treat with a bonaparte or with any of his successors be they who they may as we could with a louis the sixteenth a louis the seventeenth or a louis the eighteenth there is no difference but in the name where the power essentially resides thither we ought to go for peace but sir if we are to reason on the fact i should think that it is the interest of bonaparte to make peace a lover of military glory as that general must necessarily be may he not think that his measure of glory is full that it may be tarnished by a reverse of fortune and can hardly be increased by any new laurels he must feel that in the situation to which he is now raised he can no longer depend on his own fortune his own genius and his own talents for the continuance of his success he must be under the necessity of employing other generals whose misconduct or incapacity might endanger his power or whose triumphs even might affect the interest which he holds in the opinion of the french peace then would secure to him what he has achieved and fix the inconstancy of fortune but this will not be his only motive he must see that france also requires a respite a breathing interval to recruit her wasted strength to procure her this respite would be perhaps the attainment of more solid glory as well as the means of acquiring a more solid power than anything which he can hope to gain from arms and from the proudest triumphs may he not then be zealous to secure this fame the only species of fame perhaps that is worth acquiring nay granting that his soul may still burn with the thirst of military exploits is it not likely that he is disposed to yield to the feelings of the french people and to consolidate his power by consulting their interests i have a right to argue in this way when suppositions of his insincerity are reasoned upon on the other side sir these aspersions are in truth always idle and even mischievous i have been too long accustomed to hear imputations 
and calumnies thrown out upon great and honourable characters to be much influenced by them my honourable and learned friend mr erskine has paid this night a most just deserved and eloquent tribute of applause to the memory of that great and unparalleled character who was so recently lost to the world footnotes news of george washington's death had reached england only a short time before the date of this speech and footnote i must like him beg leave to dwell a moment on the venerable george washington though i know that it is impossible for me to bestow anything like adequate praise on a character which gave us more than any other human being the example of a perfect man yet good great and unexampled as general washington was i can remember the time when he was not better spoken of in this house than bonaparte is at present the right honourable gentleman who opened this debate mr dundas may remember in what terms of disdain or virulence even of contempt general washington was spoken of by gentlemen on that side of the house does he not recollect with what marks of indignation any member was stigmatized as an enemy to this country who mentioned with common respect the name of general washington if a negotiation had then been proposed to be opened with that great man what would have been said would you treat with a rebel a traitor what an example would you not give by such an act i do not know whether the right honourable gentleman may not yet possess some of his old prejudices on the subject i hope not i hope by this time we are all convinced that a republican government like that of america may exist without danger or injury to social order or to established monarchies they have happily shown that they can maintain the relations of peace and amity with other states they have shown too that they are alive to the feelings of honour but they do not lose sight of plain good sense and discretion they have not refused to negotiate with the french and they have accordingly the hopes of a speedy termination of every difference we cry up their conduct but we do not imitate it where then sir is this war which on every side is pregnant with such horrors to be carried where is it to stop not till we establish the house of bourbon and this you cherish the hope of doing because you have had a successful campaign so that we are called upon to go on merely as a speculation we must keep bonaparte for some time longer at war as a state of probation gracious god sir is war a state of probation is peace a rash system is it dangerous for nations to live in amity with each other are your vigilance your policy your common powers of observation to be extinguished by putting an end to the horrors of war cannot this state of probation be as well undergone without adding to the catalogue of human sufferings but we must pause what must the bowels of great britain be torn out her best blood be spilled her treasures wasted that you may make an experiment put yourselves oh that you would put yourselves in the field of battle and learn to judge of the sort of horrors that you excite in former wars a man might at least have some feeling some interest that served to balance in his mind the impressions which a scene of carnage and of death must inflict 
if a man had been present at the battle of blenheim for instance and had inquired the motive of the battle there was not a soldier engaged who could not have satisfied his curiosity and even perhaps allayed his feelings they were fighting they knew to repress the uncontrolled ambition of the grand monarch but if a man were present now at a field of slaughter and were to inquire for what they were fighting fighting would be the answer they are not fighting they are pausing why is that man expiring why is that other writhing with agony what means this implacable fury the answer must be you are quite wrong sir you deceive yourself they are not fighting do not disturb them they are merely pausing this man is not expiring with agony that man is not dead he is only pausing lord god help you sir they are not angry with one another they have no cause of quarrel but their country thinks that there should be a pause all that you see sir is nothing like fighting there is no harm nor cruelty nor bloodshed in it whatever it is nothing more than a political pause it is merely to try an experiment to see whether bonaparte will not behave himself better than heretofore and in the meantime we have agreed to a pause in pure friendship and is this the way sir that you are to show yourselves the advocates of order you take up a system calculated to uncivilize the world to destroy order to trample on religion to stifle in the heart not merely the generosity of noble sentiment but the affections of social nature and in prosecution of this system you spread terror and devastation all around you sir i have done i have told you my opinion i think you ought to have given a civil clear and explicit answer to the overture which was fairly and handsomely made you if you were desirous that the negotiation should have included all your allies as the means of bringing about a general peace you should have told bonaparte so but i believe you were afraid of his agreeing to the proposal footnote in spite of fox's eloquent appeal parliament supported pitt the vote in the house being two hundred and sixty-five four to sixty-four against the address approving the action of the minority End, quote. End of section seven charles james fox on the refusal to negotiate with france